My name is Mallory McDuff, and I teach environmental education at Warren Wilson College. And the name of my book is Our Last Best Act, Planning for the End of Our Lives to Protect the People and Places We Love. You said that this is a good time of year to talk about these things, to talk about death, to talk about funeral plans, to talk about burials versus cremation, and how climate change fits into all these conversations. Uh, why is this a good time of year to do that? Well, you know, I can speak for myself that I haven't been to my hometown in Fairhope, Alabama in two years because of pandemic, but this year I am going back home. So I think this is a time of year where families gather, we get together for meals, we talk about shared stories, we talk about family history. And talking about our final wishes is a really important conversation to have with each other before we get to the emergency state where someone has died and we have to make decisions really at the drop of a hat. How do you begin those conversations? Um... There is a stigma attached to talking about death and grief and, and burials, even in a time in a pandemic, we're still experiencing that stigma. How do you, what's a way maybe to open that conversation up or to, to get it started? Because I think once it gets started, people really do begin to open up. Well, that's what I found, Matt. And it's interesting because I've really wrote this book and started the research. This was a one-year journey to revise my own final wishes with climate change and community in mind at cost. That was a big factor for me. I'm a single mom with two kids and you know, affordability is really important. But I really modeled my research and my conversations with my two daughters on what my father had done for me. And that wasn't this big conversation where he sat everybody down, um, but he started with small conversations over the course of time. Just talking like we talk with kids in everyday life. Um, and then when my mother was killed and she was cycling, was killed by a teen driver at 58. And in that case, a month after her death, he did sit us down and gave us two pages of directives. But the interesting thing was that these were variables he talked to us about for all our lives. He wanted a pine casket. He wanted a funeral that relied on family and friends. He wanted his bluegrass gospel band around the grave site and shovels around the grave so young and old could fill the grave. So his directives weren't a surprise, but when he too was killed um, in a mirror image accident by another teen driver two years later, in our total shock, we could pull on his those two pages. And it was it was like his directives gave us a roadmap. Um, and so that's what I then tried to do in this book was to revise my final wishes, which was for cremation. But I wanted to know what are some more sustainable options. And in this region, we have a diversity of options. It's not just burial versus cremation. So talk to us about green burials versus cremation and how climate change fits into this. And I guess really maybe to start the conversation, death and climate change, how do they interact with each other? How do they intersect with each other? Well, I certainly had not thought about it in terms of climate change, my final wishes. As I said, years after my parents' death, I looked at my final wishes and I had chosen cremation. It's cheap, it's affordable, it's accessible. Um, you know, I liken it to dropping and picking off a prescription in some way. It's not hard. And that's really appealing, especially just, you know, having a busy life, uh, the busy lives that we do. But what I learned in my research was that 
um, cremation, you are burning fossil fuels to a temperature of at least 1400 for several hours. Um, and there's nothing wrong with cremation per se, but the purpose of the book was for me to look at alternatives. One of those alternatives is green burial. And we have the option here in Western North Carolina of a conservation cemetery called Carolina Memorial Sanctuary. And that is one of about 16 conservation burial grounds where the land is actually protected in perpetuity through conservation easements. But to do a green burial, you don't have to be at a conservation cemetery. For example, my father was buried in a neighborhood cemetery and the contract for that cemetery did not require a vault. So you, know, you can just ask if you, if you live in an area where there are neighborhood cemeteries like we have here at Warren Wilson, you can look, ask to look at the contract. Um, but there are many more options as well that I'd love to talk about too, beyond cremation and burial. And let's get into those. But I, I guess first, you know, one thing you did say in the book that I found interesting is you also go over a lot of things that people may not realize they don't need to do for funerals and burials. A lot of things like embalming, like, you know, whom transports uh, the, the, the body and all that kind of thing. Tell us some of the things that are in the book that people know that you don't actually have to do these things. And this really also, of course, deals with cost because some of those things can be quite costly. Right. Um, one thing my father had repeated to us growing up was that embalming is not legally required, um, you know, by any state. And the first embalming that most people in this country at the time saw after the Civil War um, was the body of Abraham Lincoln. So pre-Civil War embalming in the U.S. was not really a thing. It began to preserve the bodies of soldiers to, um, to transport back up north, for example. Um, I'm really clear, I try to be really clear in the book that decisions about what we do with our bodies are influenced by our culture, by our religion, by finances, by families. You know, some families have used the same funeral home for generations. Um, but in my family, I knew that care for the earth was a big priority. Um, and so that's why I was looking at options that were options different from cremation. So climate factors in, in the sense of I was looking for options that didn't use as many fossil fuels and also involve my community. Um, because part of that involvement really is one way of carrying the love of people who have died. So your father used a pine box um, for, for his funeral. Um, green burials, that is one way of doing things. What are some of the options of green burials that you found out as you wrote the book? So green burial in general is defined as burial without embalming or a concrete vault, which is a concrete box essentially that sits in the grave. Primarily it's um, there to, keep, to try to keep the ground level for landscaping. Um, and the third variable is that you can't use, you wanna use biodegradable materials. So you wouldn't have like a metal casket. Um, my dad wanted to build his own casket. He built a prototype of his casket when I was like in middle school and my mom kept her jewelry in it. Um, but in the end, cause he died suddenly, he had talked to a friend of his prior to his death. And so the friend built his pine casket, you know, in 24 hours, essentially he pulled an all nighter for, for the funeral. 
M materials, I guess, what should people be looking at if they're looking at green barrels? Do they even need a coffin in some cases? Or, I mean, what sorts of options exist outside of that? You say you're making sure there's no use of concrete, making sure there's no use of fossil fuels, or as limited a use of fossil fuels as possible and all these things. What are the options, I guess? Well, you don't need um, a casket, for example. You can have a, a shroud. And there's one chapter in the book where I look at you know, some different options for, for shrouds. Part of the background of the book, kind of the subtext of the whole book for me were these conversations I had primarily with my youngest daughter. You know, I'd be taking her to dance class and we would talk about the options because ultimately she and my older daughter are the ones who are going to have to deal with it. So I can plan an elaborate um, home funeral, but in the book, you know, my daughters were like, I don't think we want your body at home. <laughs> and so these conversations are important because they evolve over time. So a shroud is uh, certainly an option. Um, as long as like my dad wanted his body wrapped in my mother's linens. So the linens that had graced her table, dining room table. And so that's what we, we did. But shroud burial is, uh, you know, it's practiced all over the, all over the world. And it's legal. I guess that's the point. What are some biodegradable materials people should think about? Linen, cotton, those are materials that degrade anything that's, um, that is biodegradable. Back to the question I think you hinted at the beginning there of, of cremation versus a green burial, which, is, which leaves a smaller carbon footprint. Um, or isn't an either-or question, I guess, is, a bet, is a bet, maybe a better way to frame that. Yeah, I don't think it's an either-or question. And, you know, I, I think it's as I teach environmental education, so I'm really clear on the reality that my one death, what I choose, is not going to transform the climate crisis. Um, but climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe says that every, every solution matters. And I do believe that talking about both death and climate change are some of the most important things we can do. And our individual actions and collective create momentum. Um, to, to me, this is just as much about community as it is about climate. Um, some of the options though, that I discovered beyond cremation and green burial include donation to a body farm. We have a body farm 45 minutes away from Asheville at Western Carolina University, where you can donate your body for the study of decomposition. And those that early research paved the way for the legalization of human composting, now legal in Washington State, in Oregon and Colorado with legislation introduced in other states. So there's a lot, I just had no idea of the diversity of options, which was one of the revelations to me of the book. And cost too. Obviously this is much cheaper to go through all these things. A, a traditional burial, I think as it's defined, is can be quite expensive. Well, the, the statistic that is floated around a lot is like a $10,000 average cost for a conventional um, burial. And that includes, you know, the funeral, the it includes a lot of different different factors, but you know the one of the most popular fundraising um, pieces on like GoFundMe is GoFundMe for funeral cost. And you know if you want if you live in this region and you want to donate your body to Western Carolina University to the forensic and osteology lab, it's free. You can set up. I could set it up online in twenty minutes. Um, go to their website. The only cost is transportation to their facility, but a lot of the funeral homes provide affordable transport. Um, 
So, so that's, I think that that issue of, in, in a way, it becomes a social justice and environmental justice issue, because if we as consumers know what our options are, then we can ask for them. I think there are funeral homes, particularly in our area, who are willing and able to work with consumers. But as one funeral director told me, if people don't ask for a pine casket, I can't sell it to them. You know, I don't know to sell it to them. So demand can, I think, shape um, practices. Final few questions. For people who, who may find comfort in being able to go visit a site, to visit a, a grave site at a, at a, uh, you know, in a cemetery, some of these options may take that particular option away for loved ones who want to be able to go and visit their loved one in a cemetery or somewhere where they may be buried. Um, what do you say to those who say that is an important part to them, that people have a place to visit, that they may not have if they choose one of these options? Well, it's funny because that was one of my car ride conversations with my youngest daughter because um, I was talking about human composting um, and body donation to the to Western Carolina, where I spent some time observing. And she said exactly that. She said, I want to go and visit you somewhere. For some people, that doesn't matter. And of course, she's a teenager. That might change over time. But that was really the um, the feeling that prompted me to spend basically a year talking with the cemetery trustees at the Warren Wilson Cemetery. Um, a retired math professor named Ray Stock was kind of the decision maker of the cemetery, which is on our property. And very few people knew that the, the contract required vaults. So we spent a year in conversation and just about a month before his death, he was 85 at the time when we were talking. About a month before his death, he agreed to change the cemetery contract language. And, you know, that was, it's just one cemetery, but it was the discussion that we had together that really shifted that policy. Um, so I would say, ask the questions. If, if, you're, if you have access to cemeteries, don't be afraid to ask, because if we don't ask for what we need, we certainly won't get it. As you went through the journey of writing the book, um, how much did you learn and how much, I guess, would you say, because you begin the book talking about your father, how much of your own grief, and you talked about the deaths of both your parents earlier in the interview, how much of your own grief informed what you were seeking and what you learned as you did the book? In favor of the reason that I wrote the book, it became a way for me to carry their love with me and to talk about who they are, who they were with my children. There's a song that my college roommate, Elizabeth Teague, who's a city planner um, in this region in Waynesville, she wrote a, a song called Carry My Love that's kind of become the theme song for the book. And I think in planning final wishes and exploring options, for me, it's been a way to carry the love of my parents onto my children. And what more could we ask for when we don't have access to the people that we're close to anymore? A lot of people may be feeling similar things right now. We're wrapping up 2021. Another wave of the pandemic is coming with the Omicron virus. This week, we passed the grim milestone of 800,000 Americans dead from COVID-19. There is a lot of grief hanging around us all the time, and there's a lot of death hanging around us all the time, while at the same time, we're kind of being told to go about our lives. What can you say to people right now that are feeling that weight, but aren't expressing it? Well, you know, as a teacher at Warren Wilson, teaching environmental education, I've been so struck with how eager my students have been to talk about death. They just haven't been asked often, you know, what do you think about this? What, what, 
you know, what's happened in your family? How can the environment and climate connect to death and love and family? And I think just opening the question and having some options. I mean, death is in the end about logistics immediately after. I mean, that's like really crass, but that's is pretty much what it is. And, you know, logistics made in the midst of deep, deep reservoirs of emotion. Um, so I would say talking about logistics is much easier when you're not in shock. And that's what my parents and my father specifically gave to me. And that's what I'm trying to, that's kind of the message that I want, I'm trying to spread with this book.